So what's the mechanism or catalyst for free thought that breaks us from our cults? The cults of whatever we believe. It could be a religion. It could be something we're not even aware of that we're involved in. <laughs> so we have to be made interested in questioning it for some reason. So questioning is a very powerful thing. Do it more often whenever possible. So whatever the, uh, the mechanism which allows free thinking is, I am sure is also of high importance to the manipulator class. Of the books I've read of the subject, I have not yet come across a sincere investigation into it. So it's typically a, uh, a hava of uh, ad hominems towards the enemy who don't fall for whichever cult ideology or narrative of the manipulator. Reactionaries, the others, and so on. To be honest, I haven't... Uh, much thought about what makes a a free thinker like what creates a free thinker right how to to red pill or pink pill them right i've mostly focused on uh, the defense against manipulation but what is the seed what is the catalyst what what incepts the free thinker there's a clear formula from bernays that he's using in his book he gives an idea uh in a religious formulaic, formulaic, yeah, formulaic pattern. Uh, it repeats the mantra. Uh, is it's in this case the manipulator obeys the public, according to him, right? Despite his messaging in between his religious chants, you know, of the target being able to be subject to unnecessary suffering and further manipulation to believe it is sublime. So obviously, the <laughs> they're not the ones who are doing the manipulation, are they? Right. So how is the target, you know, the how is the reader, you know, to make sense of these logical inconsistencies? Ignore them or parrot the mantra. Right. So do we either just ignore it or do we parrot it? That's it could be an either or fallacy, right? But the evil is still in their scrambled minds, right? When we say things out loud sometimes we realize the logic is inconsistent. That's why a lot of times when they when you write a speech or, or even when you write anything, it's better to read it out loud, you know, before as a, as a form of proofreading. You're like, what the hell was I thinking? See, so, which I, I rarely do. So a lot of times that is enemies. So like uh, trying to explain a dream that once made sense, we see the inconsistencies. We make the implicit explicit and it makes it more obvious, obviously, obviously. <laughs> so, but it's not always, um, but talking and writing can filter out a lot of the rubbish. Not always, of course, as a lot of writing and speeches are illogical garbage, but that might be, might be, might be, uh, intentional. Um, and if they're trying to manipulate somebody, the, the speaker knows it's garbage. They're just hoping that the, uh, the bait is sufficient to hook the uh, the listener, right? So perhaps some know better and are uh, intentionally, you know, using fallacious appeals with different information, disinformation, and some by mistake, you know, which would be misinformation, which I think a lot of us do. We mistakenly interpret things wrong, which is very common, and then we uh, share that misinterpretation. But uh, that's not what we're talking about. Although it is, I guess, because if you could misinterpret something, that is also the vector that the manipulator wants you to do. They want you to misinterpret it, right? But it's not a misinterpretation from their perspective. It's only a misinterpretation from the perspective of what is true. So 
a, a telling quote from Bernays is, uh, there is a very human tendency to compromise between giving the public what it wants and giving the public what it should want. <laughs> Holy shit. Right. So who's determining what the public should want? Right. So this, this guy in PR has the authority to tell you or to inform you what you actually want, what you should want. This is what you should want. According to me, I'm telling you, my wants are that you should want this, right? You, it's just a one-way road. You don't tell me what I should want. I tell you, right? And most of the time it's, uh, you know, uh, covertly, you don't even know that I'm telling you what you should want, right? Anyway, so this model of PR would mean it's those with, you know, the, the money, of course, right? The, the clients who are dictating what the public should want. Notice also his use of the word compromise, you know, between the two, implying that the public wants is, is, is garbage and what the client wants is supreme and, and of course, desired, right? It's all. So human tendency, he says, human tendency. So Bernays is arguing for our wishing for less humanity in terms of compromising as in half-measure attacks. This is what you could interpret it to mean, right? So Bernays claims this is done in the arts in order for the artist to get what the public is willing to pay for. So by that logic, who uh, you know what the artist wants is uh, by default what they're assuming the public would not want, right? And the artist somehow knows, you know, what the public would should want, right? So they compromise to make it palatable to the buying public, right? So this is what the artist wants. The public doesn't really want this, but they should want this. So I'm going to sneak it in and manipulate them so that they do want it, <laughs> you know, or they, they temper what the artist actually wants to a level that the the public is willing to consume it, right? So it'd be like a, I guess it'd be like a really heavy metal band knows that they're not going to get radio airplay. So they temper it and make it sound a little more poppy, thinking that that's what the radio uh, stations will play. But what the musicians, the artists really want is the the heavier stuff or, or whatever. It could be more jazzy or maybe more classical or maybe more poppy. Maybe it could be too pop for radio. Is that possible? I don't know. Could they have too much auto-tune? Is that even possible on the radio today? Puke. Anyways, recall that this, uh, this book of Bernays is about uh, opinions and judgment. So Bernays is admitting he, he knows the opinions the clients are pushing are not going to be what the public would want if they were made aware of the fact. This is evident. So they have to compromise to pull the public closer to the place that manipulators want them. We aren't talking about uh, choice of palette or uh, what piece would look good over the mantle. We're talking about opinions and judgment of sovereign individuals about things that could be extremely important and life-changing. So the PR guru is telling us they wouldn't like it, so we should or we will manipulate them to like it. It's very creepy, rapisty like uh, thinking, right? It's it's only it's not a physical rape. It's it's a it's a cognitive rape. It's a mental rape. It's a it's a mind rape. 
Bernays cites the radical preachers usually succeed in broadcasting their radical ideas only after their following is prepared to accept those views, right? So remember my early, earlier podcasts about thaw, cook, refreeze. <laughs> you thaw their minds, you cook their minds the way you want it, and then you refreeze them to the way they were before, right? So this is the, prepar- the preparation, right? So we're preparing the, uh, the brain stew. Uh, so it's prepared, right? So you think about, okay, so if their minds are prepared to accept what the preacher or who, whatever the manipulator is, right? So who's preparing them, right? Is it the preacher? Is the, the so the, and what is the mechanism that's used to prepare them? You know, more interestingly, how are those uh, resilient, resilient to the preparations, right? I mean, beyond just those, you know, uh, just closing the gates and uh, being, you know, close-minded to all new information as that's not a viable uh, method to flourish cognitively, right? That's a, it's actually a vector of attack if you're close-minded. You don't want to be close-minded because they can use that against you. So we need uh, to flourish cognitively, flower-ish. It's funny, eh? Flourish, flower, F-L-O-U-R, flower-ish, flourish. <laughs> so flower as in bread, you know, apparently that's the etymology of flower is, uh, or, or uh, bread flower is from flower flower, like like a, a, you know, a rose flower, even though it's spelled, you know, differently. But that's the etymology of the word flower, as in bread flower, to like a plant flower. Flourish. So flourish also means to have or, or to wave something. You know, you wave it on your hand, you're flourishing a weapon. You're brandishing it. You're flourishing a weapon. <laughs> Who says that, right? Anyways, Bernays cites the, uh, the the some reverend Grant, who was a great problem to the accepted order, only because there was a large mass eager to hear and accept his dicta. Wow. So they're willing to hear attention, and they're willing to accept, right? So that it's that attempt they're absorbing that information. Right, this is like a, a holy grail for the manipulator. They're, first, you got their attention; then they're they're willing to accept what you said. They, they weren't just looking at you; they were actually focusing on what you're saying, your full attention. Right, and they're willing to accept it. Holy cow! So his it is dicta. So uh, Bernays used the word dicta. So dicta as opposed to reasoning and the the basal methodology of the public's reasoning. You know, apparently being willing to hear, which results and accepting of the data. So the holy trinity of uh, manipulation is attention, acceptance, and dicta. Not attention, uh, acceptance of facts of reason, but of dicta. It must be dicta. <laughs> Dictation. You know, so anyways, so Bernays' second example is Reverend Sunday which is a great stage name for some religious grifter. This guy called himself Reverend Sunday, right? So who used faith-stirring appeal. So isn't faith-stirring appeal the, the, the MO, the modus operandi of all preachers and all religious leaders, right? Faith-stirring appeal. Isn't that, that's their job, right? I thought. So I suppose it depends on just how their faith is being stirred, right? Stirred up, right? The difference is, you know, down. <laughs> so uh, Bernays claims 
Um, another evidence of the fact that a powerful outside influence helps make the forces that mold public opinion is the selection of which stories to print and which stories to ignore. Okay, so a selection of which stories. I should emphasize which, I guess, more. So another evidence, another evidence, another evidence of the fact that a powerful outside influence helps make the forces that mold public opinion is the selection of which stories to print and which to ignore. What is fit to print, right? He cites examples from a paper that printed how some Madame Caillou was on trial for the murder of Gaston Calmet, and uh, but didn't mention anything when she was acquitted. So they, the the news pumps stuff like crazy. They clickbait. Oh, look at this woman. She's on trial, but she was acquitted. She was innocent. She didn't do it. Okay, well, let's not print that. Nobody cares about that, right? So how many romantic crimes, mystery crimes, adventurous crimes, a public was eagerly invested in? How would they know that? How would they know if the public was eagerly invested? I guess were all suddenly dropped. And as news, these events became as if they never happened. Well, we've all seen this over and over again. So he refers to these semi-news, which is replaced by real news when it occurs. So on these semi-news days, that the uh, it's the opinions of the targets that are fixed, he, he claims, right? With no evidence. So on these semi-news days is when they, they prep your mind to accept shit. Then they're, you're ready for when the actual supposed, supposed so-called actual news happens, right? I would think today that's, you know, all the time, right? Big lie stories and reframing of big event news down to the inconsequential op-eds, op-eds by partisan hacks. On that, I know personally a guy uh, with uh, literally zero literary skill or evidence of any, and he was contacted. He was actually sought out by a local newspaper in St. Catharines to write op-eds. Why would a newspaper actively seek out someone and contact them to write op-eds in a local paper who has zero uh, history of any kind of writing or public speaking or anything like that, right? Why? Could it be due to his being deeply involved in partisan politics and his, his demonstrated allegiance for the disgusting Liberal Party of Canada? Hmm. Correlation, causation, right? So uh, also during a, uh, a puppet show of a so-called justice tribunal in Canada in which the Liberal Majority Court railroaded any valid points against their leader who was supposed to be under scrutiny due to his uh, interference with the courts regarding a bribery charge against SNC-Lavalin, who happened to also have just built offices in Trudeau's riding in Quebec. So he fired the Indigenous lawyer Jody Wilson-Raybould, who told him it was illegal for him to interfere. This is Canada, right? So during the puppet show theater of this, you know, the justice tribunal on his firing of her and dealing with interfering the, with the courts to try to help his buddies SNC to get off these bribery charges, the uh, the liberal partisan hack 
and best friend to Justin Trudeau, Jerry Butts, an infamous asshole in Canadian politics, on CPAC or wherever I was watching it, he stated publicly, perception was not an issue about this due to the liberal partisan control over op-eds in media across the nation. So there's those two points, right? Is the media, well, the op-eds absolutely are under control of the partisan liberals, according to partisan liberals, and according to first-hand account evidence that I've seen of this person that I know who was contacted to write op-eds with zero literary background. I'm not even sure, did Buddy, I'm sure he must have graduated high school, I don't know. But his daily job had nothing to do with writing or thinking. <laughs> so uh, Bernays claims in his uh, non in this this non sensational news that you see the world and assess rightly or wrongly the true value of persons and events. Well, if it's rightly or wrongly, clearly it's not the true value. If you if if you assess wrongly, it is not the true value, right? It's the arbitrary value one assigns, true to the individual's perception of what they believe is true. So there is no connection with actual truth, which just brings us back to the uh, the manipulator's trope of perception is reality. We hear that in politics all the time, right? Also, what is non-sensational is not news today. It has to be dressed up with clickbait, hanging questions, hanging questions, and fallacious appeals to emotions, and all the rest of the the, the trickery, the uh, rhetoric, how they tell the story, and not what story they're telling. Right. So uh, that's uh, the general concept of rhetoric. Right. How you you argue versus what you're arguing. So it's not a matter of it being mean, true, or false. So Bernays gives the newspaper um, omnipotent power over the individual and their families. He claims the importance a paper gives to an occurrence affects your thought and character, as well as our kids. <laughs> so the conditioning of the children by the conditioning of the parents is the, the mechanism he's, he's trying to uh, fan the flames of here, get the ember going. This obviously assumes the target is uncritical of what lying journalists spew publicly. We all know naive idiots who believe the vile, blatant propaganda from garbage outlets such as the Toronto Star, the Hamilton Spectator, and the unnews troughs of slop for the, you know, cognitive pigs of society. The fact that I don't buy their garbage refutes uh, Bernays generalization. It only takes one case to refute a generalization and I don't buy the garbage. So therefore my case refutes his generalization. I know I'm not alone. I know there's a lot of people out there that also don't buy the garbage. A lot of people don't buy it and they just don't really talk about it, but that's that you should, right? Because you're allowing the other people to be the exploited to be further exploited by playing along. So am I, am I special? No. Right. They're, they're, therefore, there must be many others, many others who also see that the pathetic attempts to exploit the cognitive lazy, the cognitively lazy sheep. I guess you should put the L.Y. in there. But for our purposes, Bernays point is that this mode apparently 
has effect at least on a critical mass of the public, the exploitable. So whether it's a critical mass even is up for debate, but it's critical, I guess, as insufficient for them to move their agendas forward because they actually have been, right? So he claims this selection or curation of ideas is done in every medium of thought communication. Thought communication is kind of an odd expression. Why not just communication, right? But there are forms, I guess, of, of communication that are not thoughts, um, perhaps not in his day, but, you know, communer, uh, uh, computers communicate, you know, they don't think. So there is forms of communication that is not thought communication. But So I, I've produced a couple of documentaries, and I can concur that there has to be curation. The, the great challenge in all story curation is to have the least impact on the truth while trying to convey what is most probably the truth based on the evidence and testimony collected. There's a problem when storytellers, be they documentarians or journalists or normal people, <laughs> you, know, you claim something as the complete, absolute, and definite truth when they of all people know better, or they should know better. Anybody who curates information knows they're not giving the full story because they are editing out a lot of stuff. You may say, well, that's not relevant to the story, but there's still, everything's connected, right? So I'm thinking of a uh, specific case in, in one documentary where some conflicts of narrative, you know, due to, uh, due to time and, and trying not to confuse the situation, I went with what the majority remembered and testified to, which is apparently, you know, the most plausible. The, rea the reality of conveying a recount of the past is definitely not black and white. You know, if I had more time and resources, I, you know, I would have done a much uh, more um, deeper uh, uh, citation, I guess, of all accounts, even the ones that conflict, that conflict. But in context, it didn't really matter that much to the story, and it would have added unnecessary confusion. So people would, why is he? Like, it's you know, it's so easy to, to steer people away from things, right? And you don't want that. You want to try to point them. Although this, <laughs> I do go off on tangents, right? So, but the documentary wasn't on the infallibility of memory or curation. It, it was trying to convey the the music culture of a time and place, and the certain details were not critical. Of specifically who was where when right you know it's not 100 percent, but uh everyone remembered a a certain famous drummer playing at an event and another guy remembered himself drumming at it and i wrote i read a book and the other drummer the certain famous drummer also remembered playing at it so these two guys both remember playing at the same event so i thought there were maybe two different gigs at the location but everybody said there was only one so it'd be easy to dismiss the one guy, which is what I did. But years after the documentary, a photographer who thought the famous guy also had played at the gig told me he has a photo of the other guy drumming and it's labeled at that event and he can't explain it. Though I never saw the photo, it was enough to throw a stick in my spokes. <laughs> right? It would have been fantastic to have proof that this one guy did it and everybody else was wrong. Like that just would have been great. But, you know, how could, you know, other band members have such vivid memories? You know, memories are fallacious, right? But 
and all those other, you know, all the other bands, you know, they, they could, how could they have all mistaken, you know, the, the past with such vivid details, right? The photo could have also been mislabeled. The, the photographer said it, it could have easily been mislabeled, but perhaps not. And I'm kind of hoping that it wasn't mislabeled, you know, not for the guy, you know, I, then I would have been wrong and, and all those people would have been wrong. And, and the, the famous drummer who wrote in his book would have been wrong. They all have been false, false memories, but not likely, you know, you, even still the odds, even with that photograph, it still leans to the, uh, but anyways, my point being it's curation, right? We don't know exactly what happened. Even those people who were there, right? They don't, they can't remember Well, they might think they remember exactly what happened, but they might be wrong because memory is fallible. So the problem is I don't know, you know, for certain what happened, nor did I even claim to, but my curation was of accounts and I ignored the possibility, which is what all stories do. Not all, I shouldn't generalize, but one can't cite all the possibilities of what could have happened, right? You can't say, well, this could have happened, this could have happened, this could have, it's, it's an infinite pattern of infinite variety. Like every, every, every node has an infinite path, right? So it's just insane. You can't say, you know, this could have happened, this could have happened, this could have happened, right? So I showed everyone telling their stories and uh, that one guy in context, you know, he would have looked like a nut bar. And so I didn't want to harm the guy and, uh, and his reputation. So uh, if I would have known about the photo or saw it better or have a copy of it that I could have put included, right? You know, I might've included along with his account, which is to, you know, add color, you know, without making him look like a total petty nut bar, but that still would muddy the waters and weaken the integrity of all the other people, which is not a bad thing if they're wrong, but, uh, it wasn't the point of the story. So memory, memory is fallible. Photos can be misleading, mislabeled. The photographer wasn't a professional, though he does have thousands of photos from back in the day, which is not a big deal today, but he was shooting in film. And he even he remembered the famous guy playing, you know, at the, the drums at the, at the gig. And there are photos of him also, apparently, at that event. So, <laughs> I don't know. My point is curation is necessary, despite it, you know, carving out some potential truth. It's not 100%. And if anybody who claims things are 100%, you know, alarm bells should be going. Today, I might be more interested in doing a documentary on contrary recollections of events to demonstrate the fallibility of memory, but there isn't much point as it's already proven that memory is fallible. Though some people don't believe it, some people do. When it happens to you and it's subjective, you're like, well, no, there's no way that's, you know, until there's such overwhelming evidence. So it's easy to see that if I or uh, any other storyteller had an agenda, it would be incredibly easy to reframe the truth to a point of incredibly false impressions. So-called news reframes events to give false impressions daily. Bernays cites that turd Lippmann who wrote, uh, not only selection is critical, but also emphasis and claims there are no objective standards here. This is not surprising coming from people who have no objective standards themselves, <laughs> being that Lippmann and uh, Bern or Bernays. So Bernays claims this section, uh, the selection is what the editors believe the audience demands, which we have determined earlier as misleading uh, garbage. So another potential reason 
why the manipulator class claims the responsibility of news selection is on the, sh the shoulders of the public. So it's so the public can be blamed and the perception management complex be absolved of the responsibility for any societal damage for the actions of the curators who decided based on what the whims of their, their paying clients, right? So the, the clients are paying and PR decides and they blame those decisions on the people. <laughs> they yield to public demand Right. As the public clearly wanted women to not cut their hair for the profit of hairnet companies and, and for people to eat more bacon because it's a medical truth. You know, it's more healthy to die of heart attack than to not, apparently. Right. As the movie industry has grown more ideological, especially woke, their ticket sales have tanked. And yet they, they still push the false woke bigoted agitprop garbage, which is evident that there is some other motivator than ticket sales in play for movie producers. Yet Bernays claims the movie industry yields to public demand. Apparently the money would rather ruin the industry than yield to a more rational unideological un public. Bernays makes a false claim that the, uh, that all the uh, the, the, the bullshit of, of this chapter somehow proves his manipulation occurs in an environment which is a controlling factor, i.e. public demand. So as we established earlier, the public is not a controlling factor in manipulation. They are only a limiting factor. They are unaware of what they're being exposed to. They limit the start point and the rate of change a campaign can engage in. Now, again, I am using overgeneralizations of the public here because there obviously are some people in the public who are aware, right? I am recognizing that it is a very, all individuals are unique. However, you can say on, uh, as a collection, there is a substantial percentage of them that do fall for manipulation. Now, I'm not saying all. There's a percentage, and the percentage is, I don't know what it is specifically, but it is evident in terms of the people you talk to who you see are brainwashed by news media. So the vectors of attack and the, uh, the, the vectors are uh, direction and rate. If you think back to school when they, they taught us about vectors, right? Vector math, it's a vector. I'm conflating right here, vectors of attack and vectors, but a vector is a vector. So a vector is something that has a direction and it has a rate or a, some other unit of, you know, magnitude. So it's direction and magnitude. So how powerful is it and what direction is it going? So note, it's not uh, believing just one lie. In, in order to believe it, the target has to be made a whole, has to make a whole chain of false assumptions or believe a chain of lies to believe the client's narrative. A lot of times you're like, well, in order for C to be true, therefore B has to be something and A has to be something. So that's sort of a reverse way of manipulating people to think A and B are something which they are not. And they weren't even, you know, argued the point. They just say C is this. So therefore the assumptions are on the target to logically conclude if C is that, therefore A is this and B. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. And C must be true because I believe it. <laughs> All right. So where the target's mind is at the start 
has no impact on the narrative goal. The target's mind has no control over this. It's the, the only feedback is where the messaging or programming need to start in order to reach the client's goal. Everything given uh, as affirmation and assertions, obviously, unless some bogus science or other fallacious evidence can be sourced. So a chain of lies, a chain of deception, whatever you want to call it, the lies target the public's opinion. The false narrative of what the manipulator wants the target to think is the public's opinion from their def- from their perspective. So right, you follow. So so then affirm, repeat until it becomes the public opinion, and that fabricated current of opinion has enough inertia to make the exploitable monkeys repeat it on their own without the master's puppet pushing. So they just condition them and then let them loose, and they repeat. <laughs> It's like uh, there's a forest and a uh, scheming manipulator starts yelling something. You know, after a while, all the monkeys uh, begin to repeat it and then they begin to believe it, you know, and they begin screaming it themselves into the jungle, right? It's very primal and it's insulting that we humans fall for it, right? But we are exploitable monkeys, right? This, This fabricated chain of untruths, which leads to the client's narrative, it would appear are usually only about two to five uh, layers or links long from from reading Brene's book, right? So some narratives may have, you know, uh, a dozen or more links, you know, which would would think would be harder to maintain, right? Because then it's it gets more complicated to maintain. The fewer the better. Uh, but there's pros and cons to both, I guess, if you're from the manipulative perspective. Ultimately, there must be a point at which the, the, the bullshit is so obvious that even a mud-flinging monkey would begin to notice, right? Then what? Then they are either red-pilled uh, by reason or are just suspicious for a while and then are distracted and ignore it, right? They choose not to care or choose the blue pill or other options, right? I'm not, you know, there's obviously could be other things out there that I'm not even thinking about. Or maybe not. So a constant enemy to the manipulator class, the the sadistic, dark heart, necromancia, is is logic, reason, questions. Now you got to be careful when you think of the word logic, because a lot of people use false logic. That's why there's logical fallacies, right? Those aren't true. So just because you're using logic doesn't mean you're using true actual logic. You could be using a false logic. Now, logic, you know, the normal interpretation is, or maybe even the literal interpretation is, you know, something that's you're using valid logic, the implication, but it may not be. The same with the reason. We could use reason, but uh, it could be faulty reason. And our questions might be wrong questions. There's right questions to ask, right? The, there is no real wrong questions, but there's just questions that have, you know, no meaning like who cares it doesn't it doesn't help or impact or it actually might be misleading so knowing there are there are logical fallacies and and being aware there is an intentional manipulation layers deep or links deep i guess depending on you want you know or iterations deep and 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 knowing conspiracies do indeed exist is sufficient or should be to convince the cognitive monkeys wishing to not be the material of exploit for PR counsel's clients. 
you know, to study and attack the manipulator class. So this is what we need to do, right? We need to study this necromancia. <laughs> now, different. There's different clients. They're not. It's not one monolith, right? There's different people with money that are paying uh, PR to do different things. So this may be, you know, how religions start. You know, some inner sanctum of gatekeepers of secret knowledge use the dark ring, the power of manipulation for their own, you know, their selfish wants at the expense of the rest of society's cognitive skills. You know, keep the, it helps keep the masses exploitable. But are we truly that stupid? You know, evidence and, and history indicate yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> There's a, there is a critical mass of effect uh, and, and we are all susceptible. Now, it doesn't mean we fall for it, but we are susceptible. So Bernays uh, goes over the application of his principles. So we all know that simply quoting someone is not proof of anything. Bernays quotes Trotter and Martin and claims that quoting them somehow confirms the actual experience of the, the PR counsel. So it might confirm his personal anecdotes as PR counsel. Bernays' experience might confirm their quotes, but quotes don't confirm anything, right? Your, your experience can confirm someone's quote, but a quote is not a logical proof, right? You could have an experience and say, hey, this one time that guy's quote was true. He said something, he made this quote, and I experienced this, and this experience lined up with his quote, right? So long as the quote is not an overgeneralization because it's only an anecdote. It's this one time, one time, you know, for sure it was true. doesn't mean it is always. So the cause or not under all circumstances. So the, the cause he represents must have, uh, have some group reaction, Bernays claims, right? Now, reaction is a very Marxist term, right? You have the revolutionaries and the reactionaries. Now, I'm not saying that he's using the word reaction here in that context, but it might be a bit of a dog whistle because he doesn't mention Marx at other times in this book. So he says that the cause he represents must have some group reaction and tradition in common with the public he is trying to reach. Now, this is critical. He keeps stressing this point, and I think there's some validity to this. You have to uh, start from where the uh, a, a, a universally accepted principle that your targets believe. Right. You can't just start from some principle that they're like, what is this guy talking about? I have no idea because they, they won't be, just, you, you won't hook them. So you got to hook them first with something that they believe. Even if it doesn't matter if it's true or not, you just have to hook them with something they believe. It could be tradition. It could be just some, you know, generally accepted knowledge, right? And that's, or, or, or values or whatever. These are the things you target that you're on your targets, according to uh, Bernays. So he's, his, his reasoning is, is flawed, but his conclusion is right, right? It seems plausible that the, the client's cause uh, would need to fit in with the tradition and, uh, and a, a group reaction of the target public. So, but what does he mean by group reaction? You know, it, it's in pinky communist speak, reaction, of course, means a conservative or someone who was resistant to the, the, the communist revolution. Even if they are a fellow traveler who believes in a different brand of kami, they are also marked with the scarlet letter of the reactionary, right? This is why you hear a lot. They, today they, they, they throw the word conservative. If you do not 
agree with the uh, the globalists. That's why a lot of people are they're they're they're, they're they're pushing it to a left-right thing, and it's not quite really a left-right thing, right? I'm a traditional liberal, right? But I am fucking totally called a cons- uh, conservative by everybody, and it's funny how I align with a lot of conservatives on a lot of this type of stuff. It's like, for some reason, they're seeing it more than the, the brainwashed. Um, I don't want to call them leftists because they're, they're not really the 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 the... What do you call them? The left side of the aisle. The Because uh, there's less critical people on all political spectrum. And it's hard to frame and name exactly what it is. And I don't want to fall in. And I do often. I fall into this, you know, left versus right thing. And that's, it's not accurate. But uh, in, uh, hmm, I guess until we find a better word or more accurate where it'll uh, or more precise. Well, it's not. A, they're not really leftists. They're um, progressives. Progressives might be a more accurate word. But even progressive, that's polluting the term progressive because progressive means to move something forward better. But all these people are. Uh, they just want to move any direction, not forward. They don't care. They call any direction forward, right? So if you're going backwards, as long as you're facing backwards, you're still moving forward according to the progressives. So there's there's always with this Orwellian two interpretations of things, right? Progressive has been compromised. Liberal has been compromised. These The words, I mean. Science is being, they're trying to compromise the word science, right? Fauci is the science. He calls him, he's such an arrogant, wrong, evil piece of shit. He also called himself the establishment. I am the establishment. So I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. So let's get back to Bernays. <laughs> so does Bernays actually mean this, the communist interpretation of reactionary? You know, it appears not. It appears Bernays means that the client's story needs to be uh, perceived as a reaction that the target public would make, that the narrative has to be a story with an implied reaction that the target would make based on their values or based on the values the manipulator believes the target has. Or perhaps the, uh, the values the manipulator tries to activate in the target. Whether they normally would support those values or not, manipulation commonly uses appeals to the morals and values that they try to manipulate. So especially emotion, right? So, uh, and, and, so, you know, be a hero, you know, have honor, do it for the greater good. You will be respected by others if you do X, right? These are bullshit, right? So a lot of it apparently is about getting the target to worry about what other people may or may not think, right? You have no control of what other people think and you have no uh, accurate measurement of what they actually are thinking, even if they tell you what they're thinking. They may not be thinking what they tell you they're thinking, right? So a narrative uh, is not just, you know, to grow your hair, right? It has to be something like, since all the respectable leaders of women think X, then the target must want the, you know, to be like them. Therefore, the target will also think X, right? This is how you sell it as PR to your clients. You don't tell women just to grow their hair so the hair net company can, you know, sell more nets. So playing with a parent psychology and not just using logical fallacies for their own sake, 
but for a reason, trying to hack the psychological flaws that we can easily make via those logical fallacies, but our character flaws as well. So if we don't have these character flaws, or if we work on these character flaws, it's much harder to be manipulated. Though it may be uh, arbitrary to define character flaws as, you know, character is subjective, right? You know, some some uh, sociopaths might think being a sociopath is of good character, right? Evolution, I don't know. It's a tough deal. Like, I don't think that's the case, but maybe evolution does, right? Because why are all these, the, the leaders of our current uh, world, you know, they're the CEOs and politicians, they're sociopathic they could they they they're notorious that the the stereotype is for them to be stepping on the necks of everyone you know to climb the ladder so character and morals are closely intertwined one is a manifestation of the other and character is the we can say that it is the collection of our behavior which is dictated by our morals beliefs and opinions so is there a difference between morals and beliefs you know, morals are uh, ethical significance where beliefs are just something you believe as true. So which may not have any moral or ethical significance. So there is a difference between uh, morals and uh, or beliefs and morals. But is there a difference between morals and ethics? So a moral is defined as what a person believes is good, right? If it's bad, it is not moral. So moral can be related to what that person or uh, redefined, or not redefined, just uh, interpreted as what that person believes is good. So if you believe this is good, those are your morals. If it's not moral, right, now that we start getting sketchy because now you say the word it's not moral, then it's not what you believe is good. So it's subjective. So it is, sub morals are subjective because sociopaths, to a certain extent, because sociopaths might actually believe it's good, right? You always hear greed is good, right? Money is good. Well, they're tools. So whereas ethics is the behavior one allows themselves to do, or I suppose the self-imposed limits to our behavior. But ethics are codes of conduct shared or perhaps imposed by society. So morals are to the person, whereas ethics are more to the society, I think, right? Ethics are some form of, of reasoning and values. They're usually created by someone else. Right? If you think about that, your morals could be created by someone else. They might be intrinsic. You might be hardwired to have certain morals and values. But ethics, I think, are something that are completely external, a code of ethics. Right, The, the morality of the individuals and the code of ethics is the organizations, the societies, right? which may be uh, you know, your internal values. Could, like I say, it could be organic or it could be partially injected by conditioning or more likely a combination of genetic predisposition and external conditioning, right? Nature, nurture. What one person may do, they may feel is moral, whereas someone else may think that very same thing is unethical in the context of society, an organization, or perhaps just some other person. So I suppose the individual may realize their acts are unethical in the context of society, yet they still believe they are moral, uh, as ethics are you know, mostly just external rules. So what's the difference between ethics and law? So ethics are guidelines about how to behave in a certain situation where laws are explicit rules created by the governments, right? There's no real punishment for ethical breaches as Justin Trudeau has demonstrated time and time and time and time again. So that could be a major 
difference between ethics and law. You break ethical uh, rules, right? No consequences. You break the law, well, there's no consequences for certain people either, right? <laughs> there should be. But for the hoi polloi, for you and me, there are, there are uh, if we break the law, right, there, there are, uh, there's penalties. We have, we have to pay the piper. So there we have uh, morals, ethics, laws, beliefs, and opinions. So what's the difference between beliefs and opinions, you may ask? So stickiness. Opinions are easier to change. Beliefs are deeper uh, and they're, they're more sticky. So they're a deeper set of opinions. So opinions are easy to change, whereas beliefs are stickier and they're harder to change. Perhaps it would be better to define beliefs as opinions that have been conditioned into the target. Though that's not accurate. If I believe you know, a story and then found out it was untrue, I would not have much trouble in no longer believing it depending on the circumstances. So there are, uh, there, there, there's going to be extremes for where we can't change our beliefs despite the evidence to the contrary. Just It's just a supposition, but you kind of see people when you give them evidence and they still don't change their, their, their opinion, right? So opinions are based on observations and data. That data could be fallacious. And uh, whether it counts depends on if the person knows about the logical fallacies and is making an effort to look for them. So it might be obviously uh, fallacious evidence or data, but some people may be blind to that, and so their opinions are going to be based on this false uh, data. So there are many bogus definitions of belief and opinion. Uh, beliefs can be changed. You can change your beliefs. I remember I got to this argument with this guy. He's like, you can't change your beliefs. Your beliefs are what they are. I'm like, fuck you. you can't. I can change my beliefs. So are we born with any genetic beliefs? Right? That's an interesting question. Perhaps a predisposition to certain modes of thought that allow certain beliefs. It makes me think of the, the fallacy fallacy. Just because the reasoning is fallacious doesn't prove that the conclusion is false. The conclusion still could be true, and we see this often. A lot of people get to the right uh, answer with through faulty means, which so it worked for them that time. So they use that same mode again, and it gets them to false answers later on. But they they think, well, it worked that time, so therefore it should work now. Well, no, <laughs> you just right. So it's uh, it's obverse, right? It's obverse that the, the true conclusion fallacy, right? Just because a conclusion is valid doesn't prove the reasoning and, uh, to get to it was valid, right? The true conclusion fallacy. I think that's what it's called. In the news, uh, academia, and other places of manipulation, it's obviously, it's obviously, it's obvious that they're lying to the group who knows more about the story than the tellers at different times. Sometimes you'll see in the news or you'll read about something or whatever, and you'll be like, I know about this, and what they're explaining is wrong. Right? They weren't there. They they don't know, or, or there's something you just know you're more of an expert on than what they're reporting on, which is pretty much everything, right? But uh and you see, you know it's wrong. And yet, for some bizarre reason, the next story they tell, you might believe it. You might be, oh, well, they're wrong about what I know about, but should I believe what they're talking about now? Some other story that I don't have the background in, right? So you know they lied about that one point. So what makes you think they're telling the truth about the other points right, that you're not expert about? So there's this this quote by uh, my 
pseudo hero, I got to study this guy more, Henry Louis Mencken, uh, one of the principal marks of an educated man is that he does not take his opinions from newspapers. On the contrary, his attitude toward them is almost one of frank cynicism. He knows they are constantly failing into falling into false reasoning about the things within his personal knowledge, so he assumes they make the same errors about other things. And this assumption is quite justified by the facts. <laughs> I like that quote. But unfortunately, not everyone makes the logical connection that if they lied about what I do know about, they probably also lie about what I don't know about. Instead, there appears to be a reasoning, uh, perhaps along the lines of, you know, they just got that one thing wrong, but perhaps they got everything else correct. They just got what I know about wrong, and I'm going to assume they got the, everything else right. Bernays lays it out that given the fundamentals that there needs to be an overlap between what the client's narrative is and what the public would be willing to consume. Given those fundamentals, much evil can be done to capitalize or destroy the public's beliefs. The idea that dots can be inferred and the exploited fools can be led to making a conclusion that's the night, that, that is the, the client's narrative Bernays makes the following meaning, but uh, with a clearly deceptive wording. The meaning is, it's, it's as true that public opinion is manufactured as it is that the public governs the agencies that mold it. He's trying to claim, obviously, that while the public opinion is manufactured, it also governs the agencies that manipulate it, which is a tired mantra of his. While the public is manufactured, uh, their opinion is manufactured, and it, 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 they, in some, it, they don't govern their manipulators. They only limit the vector of attack, which I suppose can be interpreted as, uh, you know, govern in a distorted way, as in how a governor limits the speed of an engine. So he writes, it is untrue that public opinion is manufactured. Oh, I misread, misread that. He he writes, it is it's as untrue that the public opinion is manufactured as it is that the public opinion governs the agencies that mold it. So why the unnecessary negative? It's as untrue. You know, it's it's simply the level of truthfulness. So it literally is synonymous with is it's as true. So it's as untrue can easily equally means it's as true right? It's as untrue or it's as true. Both mean the same thing, right? So why have the unnecessary negative? He's clearly trying to downplay the concept of PR manufacturing public opinions while at the same time claiming that. So it's a very sneaky way to communicate. If he's using uh, if X, then Y, and Y is true, therefore X is true. But he words it as X is as untrue as Y and Y is true, therefore X is true. Like, you see, you catch that? That's a very deceptive way of trying to say something. And it is totally not natural. That's why I caught him. Like, what? Who talks like that, right? It's as untrue, right? So we know he believes the second part, Y, to be true, that the public control their manipulators, as he's claimed a hundred times already. So this little logical argument means that he believes X is also true that the public is manipulated, but he's really desperately trying to make it seem like they're not, 
while at the same time saying they are. It's, right? So we know the public don't control their manipulators as he claims. But since he is a manipulator and claims to manipulate the public, we conclude that PR claimed to manipulate the public's opinion. Right? So he's claiming, yes, we PR, you know, we manipulate the public's opinion. But he doesn't just say it. Right? So while obvious, this is apparently a big pill to swallow, as many people don't believe it. Uh, you know, perhaps that can have a the a negative impact on them. Maybe they don't believe that it can have a negative impact on them, right? but it does have a, a an impact on them whether they believe it or not. So it's also, you know, why isn't Bernays just being clear? You know, why isn't he just articulating his messaging, right? Because he can't help himself but talk in convoluted illogic like this deceptive snake that he is, you know, or is, or is he doing it on purpose, you know, for some, you know, for some other purpose? Is he trying to manipulate the perception of the reader, his target audience, you know, the so-called elite? You know, if he's successful, then uh, then they're just exploitable as the uh, the rest of the hoi polloi. If they are not, his book will have no effect. And the fact that I'm reading his book 100 years later answers that question. So there is effect to his madness. I don't know if Bernays thinks that he's smarter than his targets, probably does, or just employ, employs his uh, his weapons of deception on everyone and anyone, right? Clearly there are factors other than wealth that determine how exploitable one is to the weapons of deception. And everybody and all the books I've read clearly explicitly say that everyone is susceptible regardless of education, regardless of wealth, regardless of everything. Every human is vulnerable to manipulation. Though I think the professional worm-tongued scumbags of the manipulator class recognize these techniques. You know, there are apparently few who explore the techniques for self-defense. I don't know why, uh, at this point, after uh, all he said, that he's trying to downplay his claim that the public opinion is manufactured by public relations. It's the point of the book, for fuck's sakes. Right? So why is he being so, you know, uh, what's the word? Not convoluted. Um I can't think of it. So the gist of all this is that he's claiming public opinion can be capitalized on or destroyed and opinion is manufactured. So he sneaks a, a warning into future necromancia. The PR council must continually realize that there are always these limitations to his effectiveness. <laughs> It appears he's talking about the reluctant, recalcitrant, or resilient target, target as a limitation. I know I'm reluctant to believe Bernays, uh, just as I was with Laban. You know, both hit stereotypes that seem like they could be true, but are not proven to be true. Anecdotal evidence can corroborate almost any narrative or any story, whether it's true or false. Right, so uh, a... Uh, an anecdote uh, can can prove a false generalization, right? So if somebody says, uh, um, you know, this one incident happened, and therefore it proves, you know, all these type of people do that, right? And that's a false that's a false stereotype based on a true anecdote, right? So that's that's the whole point, right? You got to watch out for that bullshit. So Bernays reiterates the value of appealing to the mass and feeding 
back from their previous opinions or their perceived opinions. The problem is, as always, idiots like Bernays who openly use their fallacious logic of stereotype don't care what people actually think and their unique individual diversity, but only what his fallacious logic of stereotype, uh, his observations indicate to him. And yet, you know, the fact this faulty logic apparently still has some impact demonstrates it doesn't matter what the collective opinion actually is, if there even is one, which is a stretch so long as the manipulator acts as if there is one and uses that, the fallacious appeal to the masses, even on himself. Perception is reality. Though he can't be that insane, right? Can he? It doesn't matter to anyone what the public think. Just act like they think how you want them to. This is what he's saying, right? It appears to be the case at any rate. And it's purely, apparently uh, an effective tool, right? It's not even telling people, you know, this is appealing to the mob. This is this is one little iteration above that, right? So it's interesting to connect Bernays' uh, separate points. He claims the so-called public opinion, which is irre uh, irrelevant to what people actually think, is manufactured by his ilk on behalf of their clients and the leaders of men express obedience to this public opinion. So maybe this is the actual, see that that's the point, right? So he says, we got to appeal to public opinion and public, it doesn't matter what the public actually thinks. That's not what I define public opinion as. Public opinion is defined as what I, the PR uh, council, say it is. <laughs> hey, so the public doesn't matter what if they all believe the sky is blue. If I say the public opinion is the sky is red, that is the public opinion. And the public need to be informed that this is what the public believes. So the, the so-called leaders of men may not be obedient to public opinion. They just express or show it in public, obedience to it. An implication would be that those who uh, control public opinion control the leaders of men which is a bit of a simplistic assumption, but even if it is, you know, if any of this crap is happening, controlling the public opinion would only control what these so-called leaders say they support in public. So the leaders obviously may know this is not the public opinion, but they just may say this is what they support because they say this is what the public's opinion is, even though it's not. I've worked uh, with a long-running uh, politician and his apparent M.O. or modus operandi is to say as little as possible and be noticed as little as possible. <laughs> only, only, be, only be seen doing the, the handshaking and ribbon-cutting crap and uh, say only what is completely supported by who he's talking to if he has to talk. There are politicians who fight for what they think is better for society. There are some who only do so in opposition, and there are some who are puppets of alien ideologies and others who try to hide in the shadows like cockroaches. In school, we were taught about paradigms and paradigm shifts, seeing things from different frames of reference, an electronic circuit from the component level or uh, with our recipe books, uh, laws and equations, or dumbed down as a black box with inputs and outputs for the executive, or as the uh, spooky physics that tries to grasp with quantum effects. 
Politicians and the manipulator class jump from paradigms and wear different personas for different occasions in front of the public, in front of their clients, and in their secret boardrooms where they can talk openly with their trusted inner core. It is a puppet show of deception. Speaking sincerely or at face value are rarely the same thing with that class. Yes, we all behave differently in different situations, and we all lie at times, but what I'm referring to is calculated, organized deception, and rules for what to say in different settings. The fact that the word unctuous is not more commonly used by the public is a red flag. Now, what's this word unctuous? It, it means pretending to display your true feelings, a false earnestness, also marked by a smug or ingratiating manner. <laughs> so, ingratiating. It's a psychological technique where one tries to manipulate a target by becoming more likable to the target. Smug is a funny concept. Exhibiting offensive satisfaction with oneself. Self-righteously complacent. <laughs> right? But why isn't the word unctuous used more often? Am I even pronouncing it right? Unctuous. I think so, right? Because we are conditioned to not recognize false sincerity. We all detect it, right? That times you're like, but we don't have, why don't, why don't we use the word unctuous, right? Why aren't we, we uh, framing that concept? You, you sense it, right? You're like, oh, that guy's unctuous, but you don't know the word unctuous, but you know the meaning of the word, right? It's part of our schemata. You need the, the the name for the framing. So someone who is unctuous could be, you know, exaggerating to be funny or sarcastic, but that when they are pretending to display their true feelings in a deceptive matter, that they are, you know, a, a false actor, the fraud, the liar, and, and quite often well-versed in the, uh, the deception of rhetoric. I'm not referring to innocuous smiles and metaphors. I'm referring to uh, the their use as tools through the, the lens of distortion and deception. I'm referring to the non-answers in politics as demonstrated by Justin Trudeau's cabinet nonstop to, to euphemisms that incorporate the cognitive error of minimizations or inflations to the incorporation of as many logical fallacies layered, you know, on top of each other, appeals to emotions, you know, similes and metaphors to make apophenic connections, false connections, which the target falsely assigns as meaningful. Uh, hypophoria, which is asking a rhetorical question and then answering it so the target does not have time to think to make the connections, you know, for them, right? And, and the various forms of, of leading questions, right? We have uh, the assumption-based leading question, Leading question, you know, how stupid are academics today? <laughs> There's leading questions with interconnected statements, right? A biased statement usually being a logical fallacy followed by the question, right? Experts believe eating shit is good for you. Do you agree, right? So that the leading question with interconnected statements, in this case, you know, of course, it's a biased statement and it's usually a logical fallacy. And then you follow it with the question, experts believe Eating shit is good for you. Do you agree? <laughs> then there's also the, the direct implication, which leads the target to a decision they weren't even thinking about. If you hate a group based on their skin color, wouldn't you join Antifa? Right? So there's a, there's a, 
uh, a leading, uh, a direct implication there, right? It leads you to a decision you weren't even thinking about. If you hate a group based on their skin color, would you join Antifa? Right. So now you're thinking, well, would you join it? So now you're, they're trying to get you to think about joining Antifa right? because you hate a group based on their skin color. <laughs> so then there's also coercive questions, right? Telling you what to think. Th- then they then uh, ask you to in- reaffirm it, right? You hate free thinkers, don't you? <laughs> right? You hear this a lot in uh, a lot of grifters, you know? Uh, wouldn't you like to make more money? Well, no, fuck off. You know, you know right away, right? The, this, this, don't you? Don't you want to make more money? No, I don't, asshole. Get the fuck away from me, right? You know, this, these grifters, you know, they, they study this crap, right? And, uh, and they use it for malevolent purposes. So then there's also the, uh, the, the gradient questions, right? They, uh, they imply you're on a gradient and ask how far up you would go. It's a it's an analog form of the either or fallacy, where either or is just a digital. It's either A or B, and they're both false, right? There might be other questions, or it might be an analog, right? So, and in this situation, it's how much do you hate Nordic people, right? So the it, it's a gradient. They're assuming you're on this gradient of hate, right? And how far down this gradient are you? How much do you hate Nordic people, right? So you could use that to uh, well, it's used both ways, right? So. So uh, there's there there's a loaded question, right? That that assumes a false premise, and there's no way the target can answer the question without agreeing with some part of the premise. You know, have you stopped raping women? <laughs> right. If you say yes, then implicitly you're agreeing that you raped women, right? Uh, will you continue X? Will you stop X? Right? Do you think false definition? should be X, right? This is one more style uh, manipulators like using, right? By uh, by agreeing or not with X, you are implicitly agreeing with the false definition. Do you think protesters who are all racist and extreme misogynists should be tolerated? <laughs> so I guess we can call this a false premise loaded question. Sales scumbags often use uh, loaded questions and, and direction commands as well mixed in with the questions, right? It's like uh, they talk to you as if you've already, you know, done or, or uh, yeah, you done, you've already done or believe what they want you to, right? Like an example would be, um, you know, something like, uh, should I put that on cash or credit? <laughs> would you like us to deliver that to tomorrow morning or rush today? You know, would you like an upgrade or the standard package, right? Uh, any of these questions with, uh, with adjectives are also leading, right? Did you enjoy that excellent article? <laughs> right? The, you know, leading and loaded questions are never about finding the truth, but simply to manipulate a target to think or answer in a certain way. So rhetorical tools uh, is a subject for another day. The public voice of manipulators may not be obedient to their interpretation of public opinion, but they will express their obedience to it. This makes a lot more sense if one thinks of the public opinion as a slang term of the PR industry for what they want the public to believe. It's it's hard to tell what a snake is actually thinking, especially if it admits it thinks using logical fallacies. Right. So you can never know what an irrational person is actually thinking unless even if you're thinking irrationally, there's no way you could stumble upon 
appropriate? What are the chances of you stumbling upon exactly their irrational random uh, mode, right? So it's it's even if they if they aren't trying to deceive and are expressing their true thoughts, since they are apparently not critical thinkers, you know, and use stereotype and other logical fallacies, everything they claim is compromised. You know, they may have been exposed to valid data, but distorted it through their filter of their insane minds. Is there any hope of having beneficial dialogue with someone like that? Slim. This is so obvious that even a vegan should be able to understand it. <laughs> if you're a vegan and you find that offensive, you should not be a vegan because if you can reason that jab out, you should be able to figure out why it's idiotic to be a vegan. <laughs> so trying to figure out what is sincere in a book written by a guy who was the leading advocate to make mindfuckery an established blue chip industry is a challenge. Bernays, like Laban, dropped the odd clue that indicates he might know better. Perhaps false patterns, you know, in the noise, perhaps dog whistles. But on face value, he appears to be an amoral subhuman who is full of it. Bernays writes about the confusing of cause and effect. So one might think he means the correlation, uh, the causation correlation fallacy, but appears he means the theory of the feedback of effect on cause, ignoring that there may be other causes and that his assumption of effect based on stereotype is not valid. <laughs> so Bernays talks pre-Hitler oration, right? He argues the orator cannot cause the sympathy he and the crowd share. He can only intensify or dissipate it. He cannot create it from thin air. So it's odd listening to a PR sociopath talk about things like sympathy, something he is clearly incapable of understanding. So what does he mean by sympathy? I think he means sympathy as in a feeling they both share at the same time as he's incapable of you know, feeling something for someone else. So it has to be a shared, that's what he means, I think, by sympathy, a shared feeling, not a feeling for someone, but a feeling you share with someone at the same time. So perhaps some form of sentiment that the sociopath may feel for themselves, self-pity, but not capable of feeling for others. You know, my life is so hard. <laughs> is Bernays claim that the, uh, the manipulator cannot create uh, what they, him and the crowd share. He can only amplify or dissipate it. Is, is that true? No, it's completely absolute garbage. You know, anyone who's ever felt anything from reading or hearing a speech or listening to music knows that emotions of sympathy can be created from nothing by those artists and writers. Do you consider a writer an artist? The arts, I guess, I don't know. So it's also the point of this podcast you know, you can be manipulated to feel sympathy or other emotions from something you shouldn't or wouldn't normally. You know, to be pedantic, does Bernays mean that there are, there must be a spark in the target's character, which would predispose them to, uh, to be sympathetic to some fabricated cause? He didn't claim that, right? And I hate making connections that manipulators did not explicitly say. But notice how Bernays spins cause and effect shortly after he talks about it. He's implying the crowd create the sympathy and the orator's speech is the effect 
of that sympathy. So you think of uh, thought leaders. Th celebrities are thought leaders, absent thought. Vapid monkeys screaming into the jungle. <laughs> right. There obviously are artists, thinkers, and other foci of foci, foci of, uh, of, of message or uh, hub of narrative who bend uh, to what they perceive as the public opinion using their logic of stereotype. But there are also uh, foci of narrative who have uh, a flock who hang on their every word. You know, uh, think of Elon Musk or, or Warren Buffett. You know, come to mind the, what do they call him? The sage of uh, Omaha. <clears throat> so people don't listen to them because they like them. They listen to them because they have proven merit in their actions and their perspective fields. Are these authors of successful methods just the tools of some memetic consciousness, as memetic theory claims, or statistical outliers that, uh, that have to happen in a population of billions? There, there has to be some. Elon Musk's and Warren Buffett's, you would think statistically, right? If you follow like a bell curve of some kind, right? So Bernays' point is apparently that the public has to be prepared in order to accept the client's narrative. Thaw before cooking, right? Two-thirds of the brainwashing mantra, thaw, cook, refreeze. Bernays does a 180 when he writes, to say the public relations council is responsible for public opinion is not true. <laughs> wow. Let me read that one again, slower. Bernays says, to say the Public Relations Council is responsible for public opinion is not true. There you have it. We don't need PR. Don't pay for PR. It's a waste of money, right? So let's be totally clear on what that sentence means. Bernays is only claiming PR is not responsible for public opinion. He's not claiming they don't manufacture it. He's just claiming no responsibility for what he does. <laughs> this is, I think, more, I think, what he's saying, right? Don't worry. We're not responsible. We do it, but we're not responsible for our actions. So Joe, uh, Joe Pulitzer realized the lies of uh, journalism come at a great cost and tried to make journalists claim responsibility for their lies and deceit. It didn't work, but at least he tried, right? Apparently, you know, all we have to do in the world of journalism and PR is to just claim we aren't responsible for our actions. It's really the public's fault. We only fed them, right? We fed the monster. The public are the true monsters, right? Bernays claims PR is not needed to persuade people to standardize their opinions or to persist in their established belief. First show proof of standardized opinions. You know, come on, Eddie, where are they? Where are these standardized opinions? Of course, PR is not needed for some, you know, to continue to believe their organic belief. Yeah, of course, but why would he even need to claim this? Probably because PR is needed to maintain targets, to continue to believe something that is untrue, unnatural, and contrary to valid evidence. So Bernays goes further off the rails by creating a bogus definition of the established point of view when he writes, the established point of view becomes established by satisfying some real or assumed human need. Clearly coming from a scumbag with a sales mindset, if one is interested at all in seeking the truth, 
their established point of view comes from their interpretation of the evidence, period. Whether they use logical fallacies or think critically is another issue, but Bernays use uh, of the word established is meant to make the reader think that points of view are fixed, immutable, or at least very difficult to change, which is the case in a closed-minded individual. But all of this is moot, as Bernays is not referring to any individual's point of view, but some fantastical claim of some collective point of view, which is clearly idiotic if we, if we take a beat and think about the words point of view actually mean, right? A point is a single separate individual element, something with zero dimensions, a single, single location. So a point of view is a window to a topic from a single perspective, not from a collective field of view or plane of view. So point is not the narrative, point is the perspective. So it's not the point of the opinion, it's the point the opinion is coming from. If a point of view is shared, it's an opinion that happens to be shared by individuals. There's no proof of some fantastic single entity of crowd mind or public opinion. This might strain pedanticality, if that's even a word, pedantic, pedanticality. But this detail is the difference between thinking in stereotype and thinking more accurately. It might be a close enough shorthand or heuristic for manipulators to think of individuals as a mass and treat the mass as a singularity. Uh, is that the right word? As a singular thing? Singularity, I think it's just black hole, right? But Bernays and Le Bon don't claim that. They claim there is a single crowd mind, though apparently not everywhere, all the time, but most of the people, most of the time. On top of all this, they're, they're claiming the point of view is established by some real or established human need, which is, you know, assertion sans evidence. Bernays is trying to create and sell the need for PR and at the same time show a vector of attack that he's just made up. So it appears what Bernays is actually doing is trying to show his target audience of elites a tactic PR might use to get their targets uh, to get to their targets by trying to tie their uh, their client's narrative to some human need, which the elites may believe if they you know they come from the world of sales, you know as reframing whatever junk they're selling as as a need, right? It's sales 101. So there's apparently a logic in his targeted deceptions, which is evident, which is evidence that the human mind can be insane, not rational or critical, and yet still, very devious and complex in its schemes. Brene is trying to uh, explain how PR is not responsible for public opinion because they are not alone in manipulation. Right? There's the reader, the preacher, the statesman, the dramatist. They all share in making the public mind. So PR is not responsible. Look at all these other people manipulating. Right? It's, like, uh, it's like he's claiming he's not responsible for claiming or, or participating in gang rape because others took part too, right? Well, other people were doing it. We just we just took part. We're, we're not responsible for what happened, right? Again, it's a false premise to assume that there's even a public opinion as these guys define it. But there are absolutely, uh, you know, our opinions of individuals in the public and uh, they most definitely feast uh, differently at the buffet, which... Uh, you know, influences their opinions. So we're all cooks. You know, we add dishes to the buffet of opinion uh, influencers when we talk to each other or write or create anything that is interpreted by others. You know, it's not a one-way street. But that's 
that doesn't sell PR very well, right? They want to be the only chef in the kitchen. So the public has to consume only what they create, which are, you know, steaming plates of shit. Regardless, it's evidence of Bernays' moral compass to deny all responsibility of his actions and those of his industry. Uh, he, he seems to say this mantra right after an ugly claim or a dark pill he slips in, right? It's like he's saying PR uh, manipulates unwitting targets with no regard uh, you know, to the detriment and, 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 and only with regard to the client's benefit, though we are not responsible. Right, the, That's the moral compass of PR. Bernays illogical flip-flopping from control over the public to the public not being controllable, you know, is pretty much bipolar, right? He claims Napoleon led the public uh, where it was going naturally. And when he turned from that, the public rejected him. So using Bernays criteria, Napoleon was not a leader. He was just a follower at the front of the pack. If that is true, then there is no point to PR. The public will go where it naturally goes, as PR will have no effect. Napoleon leading the people where it was naturally going is a wild, baseless, and unprovable assertion. It's also contrary to Gustave Le Bon's point, you know, as well as many others, that Napoleon was a great leader due to his prestige and innate uh, leadership skills. Napoleon wasn't rejected by the public he led. He lost to an Anglo-Germanic coalition of armies at Waterloo and was left to rot in isolation uh, in the, uh, the South Atlantic. The fact that people like Laban and countless others still wrote so highly of him all those years later indicate he was not rejected by the French. The Congress of Vienna, or a proto-globalist group or pact, uh, of leaders declared Napoleon an outlaw. Right. So a council on public relations, council on foreign relations, same tools, different scope, probably the same people, right? But on a global purview. So Bernays writes, public opinion is the resultant of the interaction between two forces. So we're to, uh, we're to interpret that to mean PR as one force and the individual's limiting of accepting manipulation as the other. It could be other interpretations, but given the context, I think that's what he's referring to. So he also claims he uh, elaborately went into the fundamental equipment of the individual mind and his relation to the group mind. Still no proof of a group mind, and 100 years later on, we still don't have a solid grasp on the fundamental equipment of the individual mind. So only a liar or a fool would claim that we did all those years ago, a century ago. So in a propagandistic fashion, Bernays claims PR is the representative of established things. Scary. PR is a representative of established things. Thing. So if that's true, then we really need to reject whatever the established things are. Right? So, but he's not, he's, he's Orwellian in trying to steal established, right? So he makes the, the cryptical statement when their society is shaken or when they desire greater power, well, who's they, does he mean the targets or does he mean the clients? It's, it's a spooky power hungry statement, which you know, most likely means his clients. He's all, he also claims PR is the representative of the group, 
which is struggling to establish itself. So what is he? He's, he's setting up a Martin Bailey where PR is the tool of established powers, but when attacked, they are simply helping, you know, the underdogs, <laughs> right? Are you the establishment or are you the underdogs trying to, you know, it's, he keeps flip flopping, right? So it's a Martin Bailey. It's a the fallacy, right? He, he creates one thing and then retracts when you, or it could be even, uh, well, just bipolar, I guess. So is he claiming that PR is a tool for the, the nascent, right? The, the nascent as well as the established powers. He also attacks the public by claiming our minds are the greatest barrier between us and the facts. He's not completely wrong. Our minds can be barriers, but it appears his meaning is to use the public's mind as a barrier between the facts and whatever narrative the client wants. So that's their facts, right? His PR campaign to jam more bacon down people's throat as a medical truth would shed light on what he actually means by our minds being barriers. He writes about the logic proof compartments, right? In people's minds, only other people's presumably, right? Which I interpret to mean a delusional resilience to logic, which I think he's trying to say, right? Which is rich coming from Bernays, who openly uses the fallacious logic of stereotype as proofs. So he argues the, uh, the opposite of groupthink is experience and thought. So now what you're going to try to think he's going to, if you attack him now, right, you're, you're, you're arguing for groupthink and you're arguing against experience and thought, right? But what he really means is the artificial model of groupthink has an opposite, which is experience and thought. So he needs first to prove groupthink is even an actual phenomenon. And to do that, he, uh, he needs to frame it instead of just naming it, right? If he, he just gives the word and in, in, in a vague, right, in definition, there's no proof of its existence. If he leaves the definition ambiguous or vague, he can fill in the gaps or have us fill it in with whatever he wants, right? Or whatever makes sense to us, thereby making his rambling garbage sound more plausible to us, right? Going by his uh, quasi-definition that group mind is the opposite of experience and thought, well, then we can assume that he defines group mind as an inexperience and lack of thought if it's the opposite, right? Naive, reflexive reactions. How could the general public be naive and not think about something? It implies something new, which one would think would stimulate thought, but it has to not by some mechanism, a mechanism that might work as, as the rhetorical tool of answering your own question, right? There are ways and, and tools of doing this. So present new information, then opposing argument or question that one might ask and answer them, but in a frame way that steers the targets to a specific interpretation. So, or is Bernays simply saying that PR needs to give the targets new experiences and thoughts? <laughs> Bernays claim, uh, claims PR is, is impartial, which sounds like he's telling the elite target audience of this book that PR has no problem replacing their own values or any values to those of the targets. Bernays goes on about technique and method. When someone leaves a lot to be implied, they usually don't want to say the explicit part. So techniques and methods to what specifically, <laughs> right? He's, he's not, so he's talking about mindfuckery. 
So it's one step up from euphemism, right? But with euphemism, you are cornered to say something. So they choose a word or phrase that is watered down. Here he doesn't say it at all. It's a silent euphemism. After uh, babbling for the first half of the book about you know masses and their homogeneity of thought, which apparently has prepared us for this doozy, he claims heterogeneity of the people is an issue as well. Fancy that. Different people might think differently, right? So all that time talking about them being a, homo, uh, a homogeneous uh, pack. Now he says, well, you know, well, heterogeneity is also an issue as well. <laughs> so then they're not homogenous, are they? Right, you self-refuting asshole. So we, we know now that Bernays, you know, at least has the capacity to not see everything in a monolithic stereotype. But this ray of sunshine is accompanied with, of course, the uh, the buckets of crap, right? He writes, uh, a group in a given area of the U.S. today is extremely likely to have no common ancestry, no common tradition, and no cohesive intelligence. <laughs> right? So no cohesive intelligence is an interesting concept. Cohesive means the parts agreeably relate. That's all cohesive means. And intelligence means the ability to acquire or apply knowledge or the collection of knowledge. So no cohesive intelligence would have to mean between individual uh, between individuals. Their personal reservoir of information is not matching with other people's, which should be obvious, you know, and is a good thing. Having different information does not mean that the information is wrong. It just means that one person may have more information on car maintenance, while another may have more information on gardening, right? No cohesive intelligence really sounds negative, and it may just be a pejorative against the the people by a scumbag who is kissing the so-called elitist's ass. He might mean that it's the, the people's ability to gather and use knowledge is not cohesive. Or, or uh, you know, it's incoherent and disordered, but unknowable by the non-expert, you know, who is not in PR, right? So, which is a, a slimy hard sell by Bernays on why the elite necromancia need to hire proponents, you know, for their cause, what, you know, why they need to hire public relations. I'm clearly uh, paraphrasing, but he claims manipulators need to use existing avenues of approach since it is not feasible to build up independent organs. Approach to what? Independent organs of what? We got some more silent euphemisms, right? He doesn't want to explicitly say. So approach to manipulate the public and independent organs of mass manipulation. Way to piss on innovation, Eddie. (laughs) Perhaps in 1923, the Innovators cannot create their own channels of communication, right? While, you know, history begs to differ. And, you know, from the 1920s and on, innovators did indeed create their own channels of communication. Does he he believe that? Or is he just trying to get his target audience of so-called elites to believe that so that they don't try, you know, to start their own? you know, uh, channels, right? So they, they, instead of having their own PR, they need to hire their PR, right? This is, you know, it's, it's unknown exactly if this is what he means, right? I get that it may not appear to be the most efficient and conducive, uh, conducive method, but if PR is as important as Bernays is trying to convince us that it should warrant the resources to create a channel of communications to the public, right? Wouldn't it? Granted, it does appear to make sense 
to uh, also utilize existing avenues of approach. If feasible, the press, magazines, lecture circuits, ads, movies, and the rest. So homogeneity of thought, vast psychological and geographic challenges and monetary limitations are the challenges Bernays mentions. I don't know what he means by uh, psychological challenges specifically. Psychological just means relating to the mind. Does he mean modes of thought, patterns of inference, or does he mean the challenge of reaching the irrational mind while simultaneously keeping the rational mind quiet? One would assume if one presents a cogent, rigorous argument backed by valid evidence, it should be easy to reach the critical mind. But Gustave Le Bon claimed this approach is folly, and the more that a crowd are exposed to valid argument, the more they are repulsed by it. Perhaps there's some mechanism that applies to the Gustavian crowd. A lot of people are not swayed by logic and reason. So it appears that uh, Bernays is just trying to sell the utility of PR as opposed to divulging the details of how it actually works. Then Bernays throws this odd bone of reason out there. Absolute homogeneity resulting in a, in a dead level of uniformity in public and individual reaction is undesirable. <laughs> undesirable for the manipulators or undesirable for someone who just wants to change someone's mind. If everyone believes the same religion with absolute homogeneity, it's hard to convince them that their God was fabricated. But if everyone believes in different religions, it's easier to demonstrate that some of them must be wrong. After everything I've read that Bernays wrote, I do not trust his making the sentiment, and you you feel there, there, there must be a, a but coming. And there is, of course. He writes... On the other hand, agreement on broad social purposes is essential to progress. So assuming those social purposes are beneficial or perhaps more beneficial than harmful, but how does Bernays determine that? What if there is broad agreement on a wrong opinion that turns out to be detrimental? So broad agreement, right? It can be detrimental. In Bernays' world, there is no right or wrong opinion. There is no truth or falsity, just opinions the public should have as per the client or that they should not have per the client. So it was the, the idiot public are homogenous. Then there is a problem with some minds being heterogeneous. And now homogeneity of thought is analogous to agreement and progress. Absolute homogeneity is undesirable, but on the other hand, agreement is essential. So people having different minds does not mean they can't agree on something. We don't have to have homogeneity of mind to agree. The mind is a complex thing. Though it depends on how one defines homogeneity of mind. Again, vagueness left for the reader to connect the dots in a way that makes the most sense for them. Instead of Bernays connecting his logic, he just says A leads to B, and any way to, uh, to make the journey make sense for you uh, is better than if he has to make it, especially if his doesn't make sense to you. <laughs> and Bernays uses the loaded word progress, which is a you know naturally interpreted to mean towards some desired goal. However, the desired goal may not be what we assume, if we even think that far. And desired by whom? You know, evil ideologues, uh, ideologues use the word progress as a euphemism toward their desired goal, be that centralized power and subjugation of the people 
or evil apocalypse where they kill off most of the planet and release all the demons from hell (laughs) or whatever's on their wish list. There's those, what was that? uh, The Georgia Guidestones or tablets or whatever there, they they had a list of like nine commandments or something on there. And the number one was to have the world's population less than 500 million. And so that would kill off, you know, a great percentage of the population. It was uh, clearly the pro-globalist. And it has since been blown up uh, in July of uh, 2022. I don't know who blew it up. The people that supported it and they didn't want the public to know about it or the people who disagreed with it and just thought it should be destroyed. We don't know. We don't even know who made it. The rumor is Ted Turner. I mean, who would have that kind of money to build something, you know, those massive stones and carve them? They didn't quite finish it. It was sort of half-assed, but anyways. So anything anything else, uh, you know, if somebody defines progress to their certain path, anything that else is not progress as defined by them, right? So if it, it bothers me how Bernays talks in generalizations, making implications about the limits and then later recognizing gradients to the concept. He says the public are a, of a homogenous opinion. Later, there are problems uh, with some people who are of heterogeneous opinion. You know, situational activation of antithetical values and reasoning to evoke negative emotions. <laughs> this is uh, this is uh, this is my concept. <laughs> right? So whenever we feel emotions, we feel emotions and garbage we hear or read. We need to take a beat and see why. Right? It rubs me wrong when someone exerts X and then not argues, not X. Perhaps we all do that. I don't know. Well, we don't. I do know. (laughs) Perhaps, you know, I might be a little lazy in my interpretation of what he wrote. Perhaps he's doing that to to piss off the critical thinker. He implies agreement is homogeneity of opinion, but agreements can be made with compromise, and that is without homogeneity of opinion. Then he talks about unified purposes, right? We can have vastly different opinions and still work together on a unified purpose. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps that's his point. Perhaps he just means that PR doesn't need to win the target over 100%, just enough to get the target to do whatever the client wants. They might do it begrudgingly so long as they comply. It's not what he says, but I'll interpret it that way for the principle of charity and to uh, alleviate my cognitive unease from trying to make sense of his contrary statements. So situational activation of antithetical reasoning or values might be a technique used by manipulators. We we always are innately trying to make sense of crap we see, uh, stuff we read, stuff we hear. So if a manipulator gives us contradictory logic, you know, they, they strike up the cognitive unease in the target. You know, we'll be rubbed wrong. We will have a, an emotional response. Then if they present a large logical leap uh, explanation, we might be willing to take it, to grab the line, you know, if it makes any sense, just to relieve our cognitive dissonance. Or if the manipulator can trick the target into agreeing with some false reasoning, then the target is later exposed to valid reasoning on that topic. They may feel cognitive dissonance and have a negative emotional response to this poor schmuck who is exposing them to the valid reasoning which is also a power, powerful tool for uh, manipulators to keep the target uh, in the cult, right? So I expect this is used a lot in cults and conditioning of many levels. The, the, the word cohesive is used by Bernays and Littman. 
So the word cohesion is just, you know, holding something together. So uh, what do they mean when Lippmann claims there are ways to obtain a cohesive force among the special and local interests? Our reciprocity, government, terror, and obedience, and the third is a ridiculous mouthful. It's government based on such a highly developed system of information, analysis, and self-consciousness that the knowledge of the national circumstances and reasons of the state is evident to all men. (laughs) So keep in mind, this is a book about manipulating the opinions of the masses. The masses. The masses. The masses. Masses. What was the other word I'm conflating with that? Masses. Does Lippmann mean a cohesive force directed at the special and public interests or those groups manipulated to be a cohesive force on the general public at the behest of PR as per the requirements of the clients? I don't know. So reciprocity. I do this for you and it's expected or polite etiquette for you to do something for me. Reciprocity is grifter uh, or salesman 101, right? They give you something free in an attempt to manipulate you, the target, to feel that you now owe the manipulator something, a small favor or a trinket, and they will most surely ask the target for something before that feeling has passed. Here's a free pen or here's a free mug. Listen to my spiel, right? I'll give you some free advice, uh, you know, which will help you now, and then you owe me. With this podcast, I'm giving people hours of free advice, and you owe me. (laughs) So, you know, here's a lanyard with my brand. You know, fill out all your personal information and give me your email and social insurance or whatever you call it. What do they call it in the States? uh, They don't call it social insurance. What do they call it in the States? That doesn't matter. It's, of course, I... uh, a gradient, a scale, right? So goodwill sent to customers like hats, jackets, you know, tickets, booze, you know, it's not malevolent, right? They're just spreading goodwill, right? Through Though, you know, with an agenda, you know, to keep you happy, you know, so you keep using their product or service or thinking about them in a positive light. And that's not a bad thing, right? That's quid pro quo. You don't owe anyone something just because they gave you something you didn't ask for. But our kindness and instinct for a quid pro quo is a vector of attack, which, you know, maybe scummy people take advantage at times. So Lippmann's second way to obtain a cohesive force is government, terror, and obedience. So Bernays doesn't expand on Lippmann's point. I assume it's not productive for a book on manipulation to dwell for too long on obedience by way of government terror. Though Canadians and Kiwis are subject to the petty bourgeois socialist oligarchy of Justin Trudeau and Madame Trudeau in New Zealand. Thankfully, the the evil skank has uh, said she's going to uh, step down. But she should be on charges. She'd be in jail, not just allowed to walk away. So do we try to unpack Littman's third point? Government-based on such a highly developed system of information, analysis, and self-consciousness that the knowledge of the national circumstances and reasons of the state is evident to all men. What is highly developed system of information? What is that? You know, what methods of analysis is he referring to? 
Self-consciousness is awareness of one's actions, and it can also mean uncomfortably conscious of oneself as an object or observation of others. So a critical thinker is extremely self-conscious using the first meaning, right? As children, we, uh, and sometimes as adults, we may find ourselves in a situation where we feel self-conscious using the second meaning. It comes not from being confident in the situation, or perhaps there's some other flaw that you care too much about what other people think. The solution uh, is to be well-informed on that subject and to be confident. Though many fight self-consciousness, the second meaning uh, by you know, being falsely confident to the point of arrogance, right? We don't want to be those, you know, if our goal is the truth. Being an adult means we, uh, we can be confident in knowing that we do not know everything and may not be confident in what we do not know. So as a mature critical thinker, we should be able to hold our judgment in a superposition until there's enough evidence to push us more likely uh, to one conclusion or a result, you know, occurs that, you know, demonstrates it. So we don't need to get our hopes up by feeding uh, a monster or being pessimistic by feeding one, right? It's, it's interesting that one meaning of self-consciousness is something that is critical for those who aspire to be critical thinkers, and the other is something we are repulsed by, something we dislike. Lippmann goes on to uh, claim the autocratic system is in decay. Is he cheering or is he complaining? <laughs> Today, a centralized autocratic system seems to be very alive and is thriving. So Lippmann waxes romantic over the organization of vile globalist instruments such as the League of Nations and mentions an interesting concept, uh, concept of industrial government. So I don't know what Lippmann means by industrial government. Does he mean a government that is controlled by industry? like some board game, or does he mean the governance inside of industry by their own boards? So there's a book called Industrial Government by a dude uh, called John Rogers. It was around 1921. So this is just a few years before this. So this could also be what he's referring to, right? It's apparently about uh, industrial uh, commons and business economics. Perhaps since that book, you know, it was only a couple of years old, Littman just used it as a meaningless buzzword. One can never be certain with a snakes in the grass like Bernays and Littman. So Littman writes, the degree to which the material for a common consciousness exists determines how far cooperation will depend on force or upon milder alternative force, which is patronage and privilege. The secret of the, uh, the secret of great state builders like Alexander Hamilton is that they know how to calculate these principles. <laughs> how does Littman know that is the secret? Did Alexander Hamilton reach out from the grave and tell old Littman? <laughs> Can one be uh, considered to be cooperating if they are forced to? I suppose you're cooperating by force. So force compliance is not really cooperation, though. Right, you're not cooperating, cooperating. You're complying, right? So, I uh, yeah, it's it's not forced compliance is not cooperation. Right? Even think of the actual meaning. Cooperate means to acquiesce willingly. You know, if one is coerced, they may be considered to be willingly, uh, but clearly not because you're coerced. So you you wouldn't willingly do it if you weren't coerced, right? So they're not cooperating; they're complying. You can convince or you can manipulate someone to cooperate or you can force them to comply. 
Lippmann's uh, mindset of forcing people to cooperate is bizarre and telling, right? He's forcing them to comply. You can convince or manipulate someone to cooperate, but if you're forcing them, they're, you're, I guess, same as you're manipulating, you're also manipulating them to co- or to comply, although they are willingly, so it is cooperating, yeah. So willingness, uh, willingness, free will, free thought, truth, cooperation, these are alien concepts to the sociopaths in PR and the manipulator class when they stumble on these words. So like the androids from the movie Blade Runner, they don't have the capacity to understand what they really mean. So when they try to use them, it comes off as bizarre, just like Lippmann's attempt, right, to force cooperation. (laughs) It's not, right? So also uh, when he refers to a common consciousness, he's clearly not referring to Carl Jung-style collective consciousness, but a collective consciousness as in a homogeneity of opinion, so if the, the material for that homogenous opinion, whatever it is, is apparently of, of critical importance, if, if it's that important, why would they not clearly explain it to us, right? Ambiguity and vagueness is evidence of deceit. Ambiguosity, right? It should be a word or not. Ambiguosity, ambiguosity, maybe it is a word ambiguosity. To finish the unpacking of Lippmann's quote, by patrons and privilege, we have to infer that he means patrons as in donors of money and the privilege that those donations bring. So my analysis of Lippmann's quote, my my interpretation of the degree to which the material for a common consciousness exists determines how far cooperation will depend on force or upon milder alternative force, which is patronage and privilege, is from the perspective of the client one percenter or third party manipulator, the propaganda available to create a client's narrative as shared opinion among the public is inversely proportional to the force required to make them comply. Else there is also bribery of regulators uh, and government. So we can have regulatory capture. Maybe it's not bribery of, of regulators. Maybe it's also force and fear and coercion of them, right? So Bernays refers to the method of education by information and uses that as a euphemism for propaganda and cites war propaganda as an apparently benign example. Clearly war propaganda or manipulating women to grow their hair for the profits of a hairnet company or people to eat more bacon for the profits of a packing house are not education by information. They are manipulation by deception. So Bernays claims, uh, you know, imply it is more difficult to obtain public hearing for new ideas during peacetime. So what is different during wartime? People are more fearful and more emotionally triggered. So implying heightened emotions are and fear are valuable tools to the manipulator. Heightened emotion and fear are the lubricant to the manip- manipulator's piston. <laughs> Bernays claims there is a natural tendency to separate into crowds opposed to one another in point of view. So clearly we cannot have monolithic opinions if we have two that are competing against each other, right? You, you self-referring what you said earlier, Eddie, right? So they might be true if everyone were, you know, pugnacious and 12 years old. Critical thinkers seek out opposing views to see if they have any merit. If they don't, they are treated as garbage 
or the, if the situation warrants, they are put in a state of superposition of the currently unknown. The proverbial uh, pin is placed in it for now. So it's self-evident that all individuals have a unique point of view that in no way means disagreement with objective reality. It just means their perspective is from a different point of view. Everyone can see the car from a different angle, right? We all see that there's a tree, even though we all see it from a different point of view, that tree still exists in objective reality, right? Whether they're at, uh, that tree is actually a manifestation of code from some matrix or a shared delusion is irrelevant. We all agree it is a phenomena and then we all perceive it as existing in this mode of our shared objective reality. So Brene cites Trotter. This Trotter guy claims that due to the uh, disparateness of people, due to their uniqueness, that a power of intercommunication of absolutely unprecedented fitness is required to attain full advantages of his gregarious habit. The fact that any human has ever communicated with another you know, it means there is nothing unprecedented happening here. You might ask, what's the difference between communication and intercommunication? Communication can be two-way or one-way, whereas intercommunication means mutual communication between the two. So if, uh, if I'm, you know, uh, giving a speech to uh, a camera, that is uh, not intercommunication because I'm not getting feedback from anybody who's listening to this. I just see a camera and a uh, microphone. So that is not uh, intercommunication. Whereas if I'm having a conversation with somebody and their head nods or body language, or they use verbal, you know, words, <laughs> you know, that, that is uh, intercommunication. Anyways, gregarious, you know, what is that? Gregarious means enjoying the company of others, but it also means to clump with uh, others of the same kind. So it appears Trotter is referring to all people as being gregarious which we know is a bullshit generalization. Trotter appears to mean that uh, PR types need to know with high certainty what the public think in order to capitalize on their tendency to be dumped or clumped with their, uh, with their own kind. Trotter claims this lack of intercommunication is why there is contempt for science and disgust of humanitarians. <laughs> That's a load of bullshit. He's not citing any specific example, uh, which makes his refutation, you know, hard, right? But if there is a contempt for science, actual science, it's due to the scientific, uh, the silence of the scientific community when the word science is used as a political tool or propaganda and when science is corrupted by funding or ideological administration, which are all perversions and are antithetical to the actual concept of science. Those who... Uh, who have the most contempt for science are those who are the greatest supporters of the concept of science. I don't know what Trotter is referring to when he says disgust of humanitarians. There must have been something going on in his life. I don't know. But today we see humanitarian causes perverted by ideological and political twits with agendas who could not care less about the actual humans at the other end of whatever crisis they are capitalizing on. Bernays claims the uh, the appeals of the manipulator should be understood logically and emotionally 
by the educated and the uneducated, by the urban and the rural, by the laboring and the professional man. Other than it being obvious that manipulators would want their lies understood by all, a key point to notice is he, of course, appeals to emotion, manipulation 101. And he is not targeting a specific group, but he's trying to attack a broad swath with a large brush. So this is not always uh, the case, right? Bernays mentioned way earlier something about uh, targeted attacks. Clearly, the hairnet company was only targeting women. I would assume an untargeted attack uh, would not get much penetration and that highly targeted precise attack would get maximum penetration, but that's just a supposition, not a position, but a supposition, <laughs> a supposition. Bernays does a bizarre attack on the dominant groups as being secure in position with the inertia with which must be overcome uh, in order to displace these groups is so much greater than the autocrats of several hundred years ago. So from the perspective of the manipulator, I can see how Bernays may want to change the dominant opinion, but this is not what he's arguing. He's arguing displace the groups, not just their opinions. It might be an appropriate uh, place to pause to let you know that in his 1960s autobiography, Bernays wrote about how the infamous propagandist Joseph Goebbels uh, read his book. So it kind of makes Bernays a prophet for the Nazis, right? Let's displace entire groups, not just their opinions. It really seems like Bernays hates the American dominant group, whatever that is, uh, which implies he does not think that he is a member of it. So Bernays then claims it is difficult to secure unity of opinion as we live in a large and inhomogeneous group. So much for dominant groups. So you might ask, what's the difference between inhomogeneous and heterogeneous? Homogeneous means all the same. Heterogeneous uh, means consisting of dissimilar parts. And inhomogeneous means just not homogeneous. So not all the same. So I don't think there's a, a difference between homogeneous, inhomogeneous, and heterogeneous, as heterogeneous does not mean uniformly different. It's not homogeneous, it, uh, and it's heterogeneity. <laughs> it's not... It's not homogenous and it's heterogeneity. It seems that Bernays is claiming X and then not X. Either he's cognitively uh, short-circuiting or it's my hypothesis of situational activation of antithetical values and reasoning to evoke negative emotions as a tool of manipulation. I often see fools with antithetical values. I'm pro-science, but don't ask questions and my assertion sans evidence are truths. Right. I'm a liberal, but I'm intolerant to those who have different views. <laughs> I hate religious groups because they don't question dogma, like what my professor dictates and I'm not allowed to question or have a different view of. <laughs> so it's also common to see people with a chip on their shoulder and blame their, their failures or situation on some fabricated stereotypical demon instead of where the fault lies, where it, where it actually lies squarely on their shoulders. That's not to say that there are not bastard antagonists that go out of the way to screw us over. But those individual assholes are, uh, are individuals. They're not an entire class of people. So the mainstream so-called news media often heavily implies all police. But we know that is a fallacious stereotype that they should, you know, they should too. But they clearly do not. If the so-called news media doesn't know they're using stereotypes or worse, they do and are intentionally trying to promote false stereotypes and that mode of thinking, 
well, then we're in a, we're in trouble, you know, as a society. Bernays appears to be infested with the cognitive and moral failures PR so loves to see in their victims. I may appear to be using, you know, a stereotype of PR, but not all generalizations are stereotype. Some are the definition of stereotype, like I mentioned earlier. It's it's not a stereotype to say a salesman tried to sell. Reporters lie or PR manipulate. It is the definition of that class. One cannot make a conclusion about the class of light or dark-skinned people beyond the definition of that class, i.e. skin color. But woke bigots, for I don't know what reason, cannot grasp this not-so-nuanced difference and a, and a whole pile of other false assertions on the class, i.e. stereotype, which is a known logical fallacy. 